This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the East Trauma Cast. This is Dave Morris, and I'll be the lead moderator for this episode. Joining me today are my is my co-moderator, Carrie Valdez. Carrie, thanks for making time. Hey, thanks, Dave. Great topic. Um, at the AAST meeting this year, one of the presentations that really piqued my interest was uh, by Dr. John Harvin, who presented his group's work about rethinking damage control surgery, and specifically the harm that can come to patients uh, when we leave the abdomen open. Uh, for those of us who trained in the last decade or so, damage control surgery has become enshrined as the standard of care in trauma and even in emergency general surgery, and thus uh, Dr. Harvin's work is really uh, kind of an iconoclastic idea. Uh, Dr. John Harvin is Associate Professor of Surgery at the McGovern Medical School in the Division of uh, Acute Care Surgery and the Department of Surgery of UT uh, Health Sciences at uh, Houston. Um, Dr. Harvin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, also joining us is Dr. John Holcomb, who is the senior author on this presentation and on uh, many of the preceding publications from this group. Um, Dr. Holcomb likely needs no introduction to our audience, but for those who may be new to the trauma community, Dr. Holcomb is a professor of surgery, um, also at the McGovern Medical School at UT Houston. Uh, Dr. Holcomb, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. It's great to be here. So let me start off uh, by uh, asking, and, and usually uh, we use first names in this podcast, but for the sake of clarity, since we've got two John H's, we'll, I'll be using a, a doctor and your last name, if that's okay. Um, let me start off by asking uh, you, Dr. Harvin, how did you get interested in this topic and um, tell me a little bit about what uh, what you found over the years. So I first got interest, interested in this topic as a junior resident in 2007, 2008, uh, when we were doing a lot of damage control laparotomy. We also had some external um, uh, circumstances where Hurricane Ike hit the Gulf Coast and destroyed UTMB. And a number of other hospitals, and so our volume increased, and so we had a huge amount of open abdomens. And it was uh, very interesting to watch the evolution of damage control laparotomy from my junior years as a resident to my senior years as a resident, because right smack dab in the middle, on January 1st, 2009, uh, we instituted damage control resuscitation at our hospital. So whereas before, as a junior resident, these patients would be left open and get serially closed, you know, go close the top, close the bottom a little bit, and eventually get them closed. After implementing the the new, the balanced resuscitation, patients had very little edema. Uh, they were being closed on their first take-back. Um, they, were, they were being closed easily. Uh, and at that point, as I was a senior resident, then as a fellow and as a junior faculty, we were taking people back and asking ourselves, well, do we really need to do this in the first place? And so uh, tell me a little bit about what your findings have shown, both, uh, you know, just the, the, the take-home messages from your AAST presentation, maybe for those who weren't there, and uh, and how that fits into the context of your prior 
work. I know you've published other papers, and just for our listeners, uh, I will post links to these papers uh, on the episode webpage, on the East webpage. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what you found and, and what the take-home messages are. So it all started with a quality improvement project that we did in 2013 that ended in 2015, where our ultimate goal was just to decrease our use of, de- of damage control at our institution. And from that, organically, uh, what we started to see was that we actually all agreed that some indications were very good and very appropriate to use for damage control, things like packing, um, getting to the out of the operating room to interventional radiology, treatment for abdominal compartment syndrome. And then there's other, these other indications that we all either disagreed upon or really acknowledged that we didn't know the right answer. And so that's kind of where we've been focusing on, is trying to identify consensus for indications for damage control. And I think what what we found, kind of trying to summarize the last couple uh, works that we did, was that um, it may be that damage control laparotomy is not does not increase the rate of complications for patients, but it may not be necessary in a lot of patients. And so it may be that we want to avoid unnecessarily doing a damage control laparotomy uh, in some patients. So let me uh, let me bring Dr. Holcomb in. Uh, Dr. Holcomb, you uh, lived through the era of the, you know, uh, rise of damage control as a paradigm, and now we're kind of swinging back. How do we... Uh, how do we interpret this in the historical context, and, and what does this mean for damage control surgery moving forward? All right, David. I number uh, well appreciate the question, and uh, looks like John. Yeah, I kind of have a um, a little bit longer view on this, but have seen this evolution, this pendulum, if you will. When I was a uh, resident back in the um, mid '80s and early '80s, we did damage control surgery, but it was Gauze packing around the liver, uh, closed fascia, and the gauze was sticking out the side of the abdomen. <clears throat> Through a flank incision, you would pull it out slowly over five days, which was actually pretty scary when you did that in the ICU. I did my first uh, damage control surgery, as we kind of know it today, in 1992, when we were still learning about abdominal compartment syndrome. Uh, those were the days of 20 liters of crystalloid. As, as the older folks would remember. And um, as John said, we were really treating a lot of edema, trying to understand and, and mitigate this iatrogenic resuscitation injury. And you move forward now to balanced resuscitation. And as John clearly articulated, um, if you decrease that edema by uh, not using crystalloid but using a blood-based resuscitation program, then you really avoid that problem, and you're left with... Uh, decreasing amounts of takebacks. And what John opened our eyes to is we could decrease the absolute number of damage control laparotomies. I would say that, that when John was a resident uh, and early in, in his uh, faculty years, our residents came to us, um, as residents do, a little bit of whining because they weren't operating as much because <laughs> we weren't doing as many takebacks. And when we quantified that, that was Absolutely true. John, I don't know if you remember that conversation. Yeah, it hurt the billing of the division by a couple hundred thousand dollars over the course of those years. <laughs> so, which, of course, yeah. was great for our patients. Right. Um, but, you know, you doc- the, the residents were whining about the lack of operative opportunities and the take-backs and the 
and the bean counters were whining about the lack of uh, of billing. So all good for patients. Well, and and as I think about it, it's been a long time since I've done a skin graft onto an omental bed or onto a vicral mesh or something like that for for an abdomen that we couldn't get closed. It it just doesn't seem to happen as frequently anymore. And I I mean, it's been years since I've had to do that to somebody. And that's such a good thing for the patient, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't Um, think it's just edema, but as Dr. Holcomb mentioned, I mean, how many times do you really truly see coagulopathy anymore? Uh, It's just not as common. Uh, and coagulopathy is one of the main reasons that uh, DCL was started in the first place. Even Rotundo talks about it in the original paper about large amounts of crystalloid creates an iatrogenic coagulopathy. Yeah, if you even go farther back to Stone and Feliciano in the uh, in the uh, early 80s and uh, around that time frame, their, their rate of coagulopathy and rate of damage control laparotomy is very, very small. As, as, as near as I can calculate, it probably in the low single-digit range. Um, and I think we're getting back to that again because we're not creating the dilutional coagulopathy when we use plasma and balance with red cells and platelets. Um, we just avoid that problem. As the pendulum starts to swing back towards doing fewer damage control laparotomies are leaving the abdomen open. What do I do in the operating room to start sorting out which patients I should push the envelope and close and which patient I should really just leave them open? How do I know who I'm who I'm helping in either direction? John Harvin, why don't you take a stab at that and we'll both answer from our perspectives. You know, I think there are absolutely appropriate indications for damage control. I mentioned some of them already. I think that may be different by different institutions. So I don't know that that's an absolute generalizable uh, answer. But I would say that if you're looking at maybe some of the other indications for damage control, like acidosis or, you know, hemodynamic instability, um, planned second look, things like that, then I think you have to look more at the trend of the patient and less at any sort of single-time um, lab values or um, or vital signs because things like, you know, Dr. Holcomb can speak more about this, but it used to be that people would decide to do damage control in the emergency department based upon, you know, severe hemorrhagic shock with base deficit of 20. But now I think if you are controlling hemorrhage, resuscitating the patient, and they're improving, and it, you're at the end of the operation and their vital signs are normal and they're making urine, they're correcting all their indices of resuscitation. Uh, I think you can ask yourself, can I keep going or not? Yeah, it, I think that's exactly right. I think the, um, you know, back in the old days of, um, you know, this old, the old way we used to resuscitate, the OR was considered a hostile environment that you had to get the patient out of very quickly or they would die. Um and you had to go to the ICU to resuscitate the patient, continue resuscitation. Now, the OR, is, it's, um, with the changing balance resuscitation, is less hostile. If um, if the patient is continuing to improve, and I think, as John said, it's not one number. Right? It, it is, you know, heart rate coming down, blood pressure coming up, urine output uh, increasing, pressure requirements uh, going away or turning down, uh, blood transfusion slowing then I think you can stay in the OR and fix the anatomic injuries. Yeah, we're, we're constantly communicating with the anesthesiologist. They tell us the results of the blood gas. 
They tell us when they stop transfusion. We tell them when hemorrhage has been controlled. Uh, it's constant back and forth. You know, where, where, where I'm interested is, is one of the, one of the dogmas I was taught was if you wait until it's, until they get coagulopathic or whatever, then you've waited too long. And that's where I think the, the dictum came from to try to decide to do damage control surgery before you even get to the operating room. And it's sort of a, it's a mindset rather than a patient condition. And, and that's where, uh, you know, I guess, uh, I'm a little reluctant to push the envelope, but it sounds like your group has had, uh, good success with, Sort of a minute by minute, uh, you know, checking with status and, and moving moving forward. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's that's my comment is that uh, it still boils down to uh, maybe we're just not seeing these anymore because of the of the improved resuscitation and, and the fear that they will become coagulopathic maybe is unwarranted. Yeah, we're, I think uh, you know, as kind of Dr. Holcomb mentioned, I think we used to make them coagulopathic, and so you'd get out of the operating room. To mitigate that, but now we don't make them coagulopathic. And sometimes, actually, they come in coagulopathic. We fix that in the operating room as we're operating. I think, um, David, you know, your comment is exactly the way I was trained. I was trained, and I taught folks for a long time to make that decision early, so that you could get the patient um, back to the ICU alive and avoid, you know, that coagulopathy. I think that what we see. <clears throat> And these patients very frequently is a laboratory abnormality in the coagulation parameters that we measure. When you gave 20 liters of crystalloid, that rapidly devolved into a clinical coagulopathy with oozing from everywhere. Now the patient comes in with a laboratory abnormality, but they're not clinically coagulopathic. It's very rare. Uh, and we've measured in some of our recent studies, and it's less than 5% of the time, that there's a clinical coagulopathy. And that's the difference, even with a laboratory abnormality. There's, there's not that clinical coagulopathy. And they don't want, if that doesn't develop, then you can go ahead and keep working and fix the anatomic injuries. In fact, most of the times with a balanced resuscitation, the abnormality in the lab values gets better as you resuscitate the patient with plasma and platelets primarily. It's going to really just dovetail on exactly what you said, that the communication between the anesthesiologists I've noticed over the past five to ten years it's markedly different. I, I no longer have to try to convince the person on the other side of the ether drape to stop giving the crystalloid. Um, they voluntarily are telling me what my labs are as we're going along, and we're agreeing upon timing of our next lab check or what we're going to do. And then, frankly, one of the easiest things, I think this is what Dr. Holcomb might be even starting to reference, is you can look in the abdomen. You can look and see, are they making clot, or is it starting to turn into that Kool-Aid blood of coagulopathy? I don't need a lab number to tell me when I need to really start getting out of there soon or be doing a better job at resuscitating on the other side of the table. So, uh, Dr. Harvin, let me give you a, a couple clinical scenarios and tell me with your, with, with this new understanding how you would manage a patient. So let's say you've got somebody, uh, maybe single gunshot wound to the abdomen. Uh, in the abdomen, you find a little bit of bleeding, um, maybe an injury to the bowel that you resect, and now you're in discontinuity. Um, let's say your base excess to begin with was, say, you know, 15, and your base excess now is corrected to 10. Would you, uh, you know, let's say no, no clinical coagulopathy, is that a patient that you would keep working in, and anastomose in the setting of ongoing acidosis, or would you do damage control for that patient? If his acidosis is improving and his vital signs are normal, there's no ongoing bleeding, I would put them back together and close them. 
And is there an absolute number where you wouldn't? Let's say, you know, pH is 7-1, but they otherwise clinically look good. You know, just the pH in isolation or the base excess in isolation, is that enough to get you to stop? So I I don't, mostly because people who don't respond act differently. And the things, there are other markers in my mind that make me go towards damage control. If a trauma patient needs continuous vasopressors, that is somebody who's very sick and something else is going on, and that might be someone who had to do it all. If you're still requiring transfusions, um, that person's deficit would probably not correct, and that's somebody I would do it on. But the majority of patients, as you resuscitate them, they improve. And so, no, I don't have an absolute number that I don't do it on. It's based upon the clinical condition of the patient. And, and what about, is there some, you know, if you recognize that there's going to be a, a lengthy vascular reconstruction or something like that, um, does that push you more towards damage control and shunting? Or would you even undertake kind of more involved, more, you know, vein harvesting, those types of things um, at, at that first operation? Or would you still lean more towards uh, damage control in those cases where you know you've got several hours of work ahead of you? So I would say that in a lot of those cases, um, I would probably move towards damage control. If you have an abdominal retroperitoneal vascular injury that, uh, that needs reconstruction, those patients are usually quite sick. If they didn't have that, if they if somehow we got lucky and controlled the bleeding without losing a ton of blood, um, and they were doing fine, then yes, I would put them back together. But most of the time, clinically, those patients are quite sick and we end up shunting them. So, David, I think uh, you know, this damage control resuscitation came out of the war in, uh, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and there were a lot of vascular injuries to the extremities in that, in that conflict. And, and the answer to your question really is, is uh, at least in the, in the military casualty population has been published, by using DCR, you can stay in the operating room longer and repair, fix the vascular injury. But it really is, just like we've talked about in the abdomen, it's based upon the trajectory and physiologic uh, trends in the patient. As long as those trends are moving in the right direction, and it's not just one number, as John Harvin said, it's a trend of, you know, all, all of those variables, and you can stay in the OR and fix the vascular injury, and that's what I would do. When you uh, have made a decision to stay open, maybe the trend isn't going in the right direction, or like you suggested, the vasopressors are still on, how soon are you trying to get back to the operating room? Is it as soon as they physiologically normalize? Is there any weight to maybe the concept of giving the patient a break and let's wait 24 hours before we go back? How, how do you make that judgment? We were pretty aggressive of getting them back early here. If they if they're left open and go to the ICU, um, if they're physiologically normal, we'll take them back as soon as possible. That could be 12 hours, 24 hours. Uh, we generally will not leave people open uh, more than 24 hours without going and taking another look. Uh, if they still are requiring, you know, vasopressors at 24 hours, and usually we consider that we have missed an injury or missed something and need to go look again to try and res as a part of their resuscitation. Yeah, Kerry, I think that's a great question, and, you know, there's some good data about that. The one that uh, these patients do better if you take them back quicker. Um, there's no reason, once once they become physiologically normal in the ICU, then you should take them back to the operating room. We looked at that pretty carefully, and, uh, and actually Matt Martin's group helped us do that with some data that we generated. Every once I just hear people say, well, it's such a physiologic hit to go back. Let's just give them a little time. 
And I'm, I agree with you. I think the sooner you go back, that's the physiologic hit is keeping that abdomen open. Try to get that, try to get back at closed as soon as you possibly can. Yeah. Do you, when you leave your abdomens open, do you find a benefit in using some adjuncts like the direct peritoneal resuscitation or drains? So I have, uh, I've not done that. Um, I, I think, uh, either one of those actually. I don't put drains in the abdomen. I leave it open. We have not used, uh, DPR. But we are looking into it actively. We're very interested in it. It's just not something that we had done here. And we need to um, kind of work out some protocols and algorithms for the ICU nurses to follow in order to do it. Right now, the only adjunct to open abdomen that we're using is hypertonic saline as maintenance fluids to kind of help prevent uh, fluid creep in the ICU. going to put in a plug for um, some the DPR, I've brought it to two hospitals. I've had some pretty good results. It's amazing how normalized the bowel looks on that second uh, second laparotomy. If anybody's interested, I've created the nursing protocol and we've taken pictures of how to get all the tubings together. I'd be happy to put that up um, as adjunctive material as well if anyone's interested. Um, and then as a plug for our Twitter account, any of our listeners who haven't um, followed us yet, we're at East uh, underscore TraumaCast, and you can follow along, find out when we have uh, upcoming TraumaCast coming out. And then also give us some feedback or some questions that we can ask kind of uh, in preview of an upcoming trauma cast and we can make sure that we get those questions answered uh, during the recording. We, we would love Great. to get a copy of those uh, those nursing algorithms. Sure, happy to. So uh, another quick question. This, this uh, moves us in a little bit of a different direction, but um, do you think that your results, uh, Dr. Harvin, are translatable or extrapolatable to emergency general surgery indications for damage control, or is that a different animal entirely? I think it's a different animal entirely. But I think, so, you know, a lot of the work that Dr. Holcomb and I have done on this started from the Quality Improvement Project uh, that was published in Jackson, I believe, 2017. And I think, really, it's not so much the results of that that are important. It's the fact that each institution can go and look at their own indications for damage control, whether it's trauma or emergency general surgery. And if they think that they are doing too much, then they can start this process whereby you understand, you know, what what is it that y'all believe appropriate and what do y'all think y'all should maybe take a second second look at in terms of using as indications for, for leaving patients open. So it's more the process, I think, than the outcomes. I think the emergency general yeah, surgery it's a little bit different. Sorry, Terry. The, the, if you're offering for mesenteric ischemia, um, you know, and you take out that dead valve, and, and there is a role, I think, for a second look in those cases to see if there's progression of that documented ischemia. Not, much less so for sepsis. I don't do that. But the second look for mesenteric ischemia patients, I think, is a reason they didn't go in the emergency general surgery patients. Yeah, that's a key distinction and, and one that we should be mindful of, that damage control surgery and temporary abdominal closure are not always the same things, and that's a, that's a key point. So, I was saying, I think it also, I, I like your point about looking at each institution because it, it really also matters in workflow, whether you are a private practice general surgeon covering trauma and emergency call and who is available to take that patient back in 12 hours. Is it you? Is it your partner? Or if you work in an institution that has 24-7 surgeons in-house so that the workflow can go much easier, I think that really makes a difference in, in sometimes how we can best manage these patients and when to get them back. Yeah, you know, I think I think also uh, in addition to that, you know, injury patterns at different centers, are they, they can be remarkably different. Um, and so people may have, 
you know, the indications may be more appropriate at some institutions than at others. Um, for example, you know, Dr. Holcomb mentioned second look in emergency general surgery for mesenteric ischemia. I, I agree that that is a incredibly uh, appropriate um, indication for leaving a patient open in emergency general surgery. But in our experience at this institution, the second look in trauma for bowel viability tends to have a very low rate of going back and finding non-viable bowel. Um, so that's an indication that has kind of flipped from emergency general surgery to trauma, but I think that we need to reconsider. So I think that was one of the main findings of your of your work, right, is to take the opportunity to avoid those second-look operations in trauma. Yeah, I think we need to, we need to better understand uh, what is a uh, good indication to do a second look and what is not a particularly helpful indication to do a second look in, in trauma. Well, and that leads to my next question, which is, um, you know, how do we how do we select these patients now? If we if we recognize that not everybody needs to have this, there probably still are some patients. Uh, you know, I, I had an unfortunate case just a couple of weeks ago that was. No question, though, the damage control situation. And um, and so they, they're still out there. So um, have you done any work into uh, uh, protocolizing this or, or, or you know, creating uh, patient selection criteria? Or, or uh, Dr. Holcomb and I were talking offline about, you know, maybe this is a ripe opportunity for an, uh, a practice management guideline, an East practice management guideline along these lines of who is the appropriate candidate in the modern era of resuscitation. Have you guys looked at that at all or tried to set any of that stuff up? Um, so we have some studies going on, and so we haven't protocolized it yet, but what we've done is, you know, in a single center, uh, we've tried to start describing uh, indications for which we have consensus, for which we all think that damage control is appropriate. And at East in January, I'll be presenting a multi-institutional QI project where we tried to answer that same question but in a more generalizable fashion where we say, what are the indications that people believe uh, are appropriate? And so I think you, you take those, and those those are the ones that we would all do a damage control laparotomy in. I think it's the other indications where uh, we don't really know the right answer. Uh, we're doing a randomized control trial of those other indications right now at, at this institution, a uh, pilot trial, really, just to see if it's feasible to even do this. But I think we don't know yet. I think uh, that's all the questions I had. Carrie, do you have any other questions that you wanted to ask? No, I have lots of questions I want answered, but I don't think we have answers to them yet. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to the research that's coming down the pike because, I mean, really, I, I brought um, uh, even DPR to um, Grand Rapids to Spectrum a few weeks ago, and the questions that my partners had are supportive and willing to do it. They just want me to come up with some kind of ideas of when should we do it, when shouldn't we do it, so the group as a whole is kind of having some standards of practice. And it's difficult because, like you just described, we don't have the data. A lot of it right now is still kind of clinical just instinct and what we, we think is probably the best idea, but I'm looking forward to having some more of those answers soon. And there's no question that uh, Dr. Harvin, Dr. Holcomb, your your group's work in this era, I think, will become the foundation of, uh, you know, any future guidelines that may may come out um, will be will be heavily relied upon. So thank you both for doing this work and, and for taking time today to, to talk with us. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great, David. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes. Thank you both. And like yeah, I said, uh, for you, uh, for you, if you're interested in the specific papers, I'll put links to those. Um, Carrie, I think we should put up the link for your uh, DPR uh, protocol. I think uh, people will find that of interest. 
And if you have, sure, and uh, I can uh, tag it over to Twitter. Yeah, as I said, if you if if you have other questions or um, ideas for us, please engage with us through the Twitter channel, and uh, we look forward to doing that. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us today, and uh, look forward to future work from your group. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.